the opportunity that's ours this morning to assemble and to gather as we have, to gather with those of like precious faith, 2 Peter 1 verse 1, continues to each week be a refreshing and re reviving matter. And even as Brother Ted mentioned just a moment ago, we are certainly inching very quickly toward our gospel meeting some two weeks from today. Is it the beginning date of it? Sunday through Wednesday of this week. And as we do so, let's certainly try and strive with great effort to make appropriate personal preparations, clearing our calendars, making things ready so that we can participate, support, and be involved in all the ways that would be supportive of that gospel meeting. As we often are in presence of visitors, we are certainly thankful for the presence of each and every one today as well as our membership alike. And we're trustful and hopeful that our lesson today and all the other aspects of the service will be helpful, encouraging, and most of all, directive of glory to our Father in heaven. Some introductory thoughts about the lesson this morning might well begin this way, and then we'll revisit that title in just a moment. Approximately 2,000 years ago, a momentous set of years took place in which Jesus walked in the flesh upon this earth. He did so and, of course, changed everything. No longer could one come before God in any way like in days prior. He was the exclusive way and remains to this day the only way into eternal life. As we give thought for just a few moments this morning about the nature of the Christ, the character of His coming, the great way in which He brought change in all those matters, might we ask, why did He come? The Old Testament had foretold in rather clear glory that He would, and it had made even many statements about the nature of His work, the character of His effort, the thoroughness of what He would bring to bear and benefit to the human family. As we give thought to all of those passages, not the least of which would be Isaiah 53, isn't it still fair to say that His teaching, His work, the nature of His offering for of Himself on the cross literally changed everything. Why did He come? You and I could in fact invest many hours on end discussing it. My hope would be to summarize it briefly and simply try to use a few passages selected in character to give each of us an opportunity to reflect again on the reasons as to why our Savior came. Might we begin to do so in the following way. First of all, this is certainly one lesson that we should take to heart. Brother Adam just led us in a song a moment ago, and this was the critical element in the words of that song, to seek and to save the lost. I would invite you to make a brief journey with me as we think, at least in part one of our lesson this morning, about the nature of this part of our Lord's coming. Our God is a God of love. In 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, we read passages that remind us in no uncertain terms about the thoroughness and the power and majesty of the love of God. And as we read it, it simply says that he that knoweth not loveth not, for God is love. Our God is in fact love. And that it reminds us that His love is a perfect one. It is absolutely thorough and complete in every way that's right. To say that differently, He loves you and me, and yea, all other elements that He loves in the following way. He wishes, He wills, it is His desire in thoroughness for the absolute best for those that He loves. Because that's what love in its infinite way really is. 
That means for you and me and His love for us, He literally wants for us what honestly is the absolute best from the perspective of eternity. That attribute of the love of God, doesn't it remind us, at least briefly, about some of the stories and the records that the Holy Scriptures reveal to us? For you see, we know that God too is infinite. He is not bound by the recesses of time. He isn't bound by what you and I would call as past, present, and future. He is understanding of all things. And in fact, doesn't that remind us of this? Long before He even created the human family, He knew of the kind of creatures that humans would be. And He understood well the kind of failures and the kind of sins that would come to be their lot. And He understood fully what would be required to remit those sins so that they could stand in a right and complete relationship with Him. He knew it all. More than once, the Scriptures use phrases such as, "...before the foundation of the world." You see, in the infinite recesses of the mind of God, He knew all of that. He knew what your mistakes and mine would be. He knew what the weaknesses of the flesh that would, you and I would allow to overcome us. He also knew in fullness that there was need to have those sins forgiven. For you see, His love mandates He doesn't want you and me to be lost. He doesn't want us to remain distant and apart and aloof from Him. He wants us to enjoy all the blessings of a full, thorough, and complete relationship with Him. Look at some of these verses with me over the next few moments. In a sense of saying that God knew all of those things, He also knew, of course, that men would be guilty of evil, that they would choose to transgress His law, that they would choose to sin. They weren't forced to, they weren't made to, but they would choose to. In 1 Kings 8 verse 46, we read that as Solomon on that occasion of the dedication of the temple, he made this monumental statement, and it's one that rings and echoes so often in the pages of the Word of God and even in your life and mine to this day. There is no man, Solomon said, that sinneth not. Even Solomon understood that all are guilty of sin, and didn't Paul reiterate that? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means that you and I as well are in fact captivated by, overwhelmed by, and enthralled by the reality of sin. And oftentimes as we find ourselves engulfed in it, it does bring us to this consequence. Though some may say, what does that matter? But the Bible again reminds us that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin, that which is its natural consequence, that which is the retribution for it, is death. James wrote in James 1 beginning in verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Sin brings death. It brings separation from God because the writer in Isaiah 59, in fact, so directly states it in that fashion, in that way. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, 
Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. When you and I reflect upon it, isn't it the most awful, the most tragic, the most despicable thing to be separated from God? For he's the giver of all that's life, the giver of all that's good, the giver of everything that flows from love, and yet to be separated from him puts all those blessings at a distance from us. At this point, though, aren't we seeing a rather tragic set of circumstances? All of us are sinners. We are all guilty of sinking. 1 John 1 verses 8 and 10 remind us that all of us are in position of need to be reminded of this. Isn't it true? He that saith, I have no sin, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We each, of course, in the character of weakness and in the character of realization are reminded time and again that the Word of God teaches us as sinners we need something. We need someone. No wonder as we give thought to some of the closing points on that slide that sin results in such a tragic circumstance. This separation we've noted, this character being distanced from Him, at this point, no wonder we should cry out like those in Acts 2.37, What shall we do? What can we do? What proper way is there to be drawn back to God? On this slide, you'll notice that God intervened on our behalf. You'll notice that you and I were in position to do nothing. We could not offer an acceptable enough sacrifice we were not able to in any way shed precious blood for our own sins. It was then that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. As we noted earlier, God knew all of that was going to happen. As He looked down the stream of what you and I would call time and saw mankind in a messed up state, Guilty of sin, unable to do anything about it. He determined in that long distant past, I'm going to avail out of my love and out of my gracious desire, I'm going to avail a means of the giving of myself so that those creatures, human, the human family, could in fact be forgiven. What a loving God He is. What a powerful God He is to have that much concern and that much desire for creatures to, in fact, be His own. God fashioned and made us. Some might be willing to say, well, what good was that? Why does He want our interest and why does He want us to have relationship with Him? Because He knows that's the best for us. And in that element of love, He sent Himself. The Bible calls Him Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. In Matthew 1, 23, call Him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the Savior came, executed perfectly God's plan of salvation. And as He executed and brought to fruition and to bear that plan of salvation, it reminds us of some of the thoughts upon that slide as you can now see them. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, as Peter wrote to those of that day, he reminded them, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. But then he quickly says, but with the precious blood of Christ foreordained since the foundation of the world. Did you note that phrase with me? 
even before the foundation of the world, there was this plan in the mind of God to save you and me. Why did Jesus come? To seek and to save the lost. When the Lord spoke with Zacchaeus in Luke 19, verse 10, as Jeremy read for us earlier, it was in the midst of that powerful realization that He said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And who is that? That's all of us. Prior to our obedience to the gospel, all of us were in that state. All of us were in this condition of being lost. All of us were in this condition of being undone. Being lost. That's a phrase that in religious circles is used quite often, isn't it? To be lost. Think with me for just a moment what it means to be lost. If you lose your car keys... Might we ask it this way, are those car keys useful while they're lost? Can they open the car door? Can they start the engine? Can they open the trunk? The obvious answer is no. Although the power is able to do that, they are nowhere to be found. It is not until they're discovered, they're found, that then they can carry out the duties and the objectives for which they were made. Let's apply that thinking to the human family. A person who is lost in the mind of God, at that moment, is he able to fulfill all the potential and all of the grandeur that God would have intent and in store for that one to fulfill? No. Not until he is saved. Found, if you please. Discovered in light of the glorious goodness of God's grace and mercy and blessing. Then he can mature and fulfill all the attributes and purposes for which the God of heaven would have him or her to live. Being lost. It is a tragic condition, isn't it? You'll notice on that slide too, might we appreciate that our Savior, according to John 3, verses 16 and 17, we so often lay some emphasis on verse 16. As we note that passage, let's move on into verse 17 though in just a moment. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then verse 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. There are those who perhaps as cartoonists have drawn pictures and show God as some overbearing tyrant who is mean, who is hateful, who is unloving, and they have missed entirely the point because the Son of God came not to destroy, but to save the world. He wants you and He wants me to appreciate that plan of salvation, and yet He wants the whole human family to appreciate it and to come at once in full obedience to it. In 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, the inspired writer reminds us, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You and I alike have been invited, we have been urged, we have been encouraged. The testimony of the cross is the greatest of all. Why did Jesus come to seek and save you and me, the lost? At this point, as we give thought to that particular attribute of the Lord's coming, Jesus is that exclusive way that the Father in heaven has provided. He is the only one. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you and I reject Him, we reject the only one that can seek and save the lost. And we forever consign ourselves to be in that position of being lost. Why not look though at another thing found in the Scriptures that touches this same subject? Why did Jesus come? To seek and save the lost is the initial statement we made. Look also with me at this one. Found in 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, we find on this occasion that the appearing of the Savior, the very attribute of His coming, the attribute of His presence before the human family was this, to abolish death and to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. Isn't that such a poetic phrase? To abolish death on the one hand, and then it goes on to say to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. I would invite you to reflect for just a few moments with me about that. There is in the very attribute of that word abolish the following thoughts that immediately come to our mind. Jesus abolished death according to that passage. That word abolish is defined as follows. It denotes a non-physical destruction by means of a superior force coming in to replace the force previously in effect. Death was the order of the day prior to the coming of the Christ. Oh, it's true, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And we understand that that seems to be a very natural part of life in the physical realm. But we notice spiritually it also was the case that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, and yet sin inevitably leads to death, as we've learned earlier today. It was the coming of the Christ that brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus overwhelmed the power of death. You'll notice that He, of course, was raised from the grave by the power of God in Romans 1 verse 4 as the declaration is made. And as such, the fulfillment of that gives you and I all the guarantee that we too will be raised and the power of death has been broken. We look forward to living in heaven forevermore. That's the hope all of us have, surely. And it's the desire that we each should embed deeply within us and thus live in a committed and dedicated fashion so that that will be a reality. But who was it that abolished death and gave us that hope? Who was it that died on the cross to take our place to keep us out of hell? Wasn't it the Savior? Why did He come? He came to abolish death and to bring life and immortality to light. Immortality. There have been many an individual who has sought it. Scientists have pursued it. Individuals in business have longed for it. Pharmacists have striven to prepare things to produce it. Immortality, so that I can live for on and on in this flesh. The tales are, the tales are told about ancient explorers, such as Ponce de Leon, who trudged for years over Florida looking for the so-called fountain of youth that would permit him to always remain youthful and young? As we know, he never found it. He found many other things, but that he did not find. But we understand from the Scriptures the appointment of this physical attribute we describe as death, but we also know that beyond that grave, there's life forevermore. Didn't the Lord say in John 5, 28 and 29, "'Marvel not at this.'" For the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice, 
and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. There's coming a day that all in the graves are going to come forth. Although many are the cemeteries now, and many are the headstones, and many are the circumstances that are descriptive of death, there's coming a day when, as we read in Revelation 20, all of that's going to be undone. Hades will be emptied, and the great judgment's going to ensue. Jesus abolished death. You and I have and can have the very realistic treasure of that hope within us that we know death isn't the end. It, in fact, is only a transition to a different existence. And, in fact, for those who die in the Lord, a much better and greater one. And in so doing, the abolishment of death, what realistic hope it gives all of us. Think with me for a moment, though. What about those who do not have that hope? Who have, in fact, to this point resisted the sacrifice of our Savior? who have thumbed their nose at the offering He made, have not given no heed to the gospel plan of salvation. At this point, they have looked God in the face and said, I'm uninterested. I don't care. I don't think I'm lost. All the while, God of heaven says, My son died on the cross to prove you're lost. You need His death for His blood is the only cleansing power of your sin. Jesus came to abolish death to bring life and immortality to light. The last prepositional phrase in that verse is through the gospel. We have the greatest treasure that our hands can hold, the precious Word of God that reveals to us this gospel, the message of the Christ, the opportunity of the plan of salvation, and the wonderful life in store for those that are Christians. The devil can, of course, paint these rather appealing pictures of the things of this life, and many seem captivated by it, may we be wiser. May we be more earnest, and may we be more appreciative of the truth revealed in these Scriptures. As Jesus, our Savior, brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel, notice it allows us also to make that bottom observation. That very thing could perhaps be restated differently. Jesus came to help you and me avoid hell and to introduce us to heaven. That'd be another way of saying much the same thing. We understand well that as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter of the Bible, that there it is very clearly stated beginning in verse number 42, but particularly highlighted in verses 53 and following. Listen as we give thought to the nature of death and the character of the grave. Paul begins by saying that this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And then he quickly identifies what he means in this way. For when this corruption shall have put on incorruption and when this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the thing that is written... O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? And then Paul quickly identifies the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where is the victory to be found over death, over the grave, over this eternal ending as it appears? 
It is found only in Christ. May we submit that by far then the most important thing to be able to say is, I am a Christian. The most important thing for you is for you to be able with confidence to say that I am a faithful Christian. Many other things might be said. I'm a teacher. I'm a lawyer. I'm a businessman. I'm a housewife. All of those things are good when we use our talents appropriately in those fields and in those areas. But by far the most important is to say, I am a Christian. Can you say that today? The abolishment of death, in fact, puts your name into the Lamb's book of life when you obey that gospel plan of salvation. And some of these final thoughts on that slide then point us only to the next ones. Because we could go on to say this. As the Bible has identified these eternal rewards, on the one hand there is that place that we described as hell. Jesus came to give you and me a means whereby we could avoid that place. The Bible describes hell in such graphic ways. And although it's true that many think that those are just hyperboles, they're just descriptive ways, but the hell really isn't that way. May I suggest that the passages on many occasions in which those are found surely must be taken literally. They are not in poetic sections of the Bible. They are not in figurative sections of Scripture. Jesus exactly said that hell is a place where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. It's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verses 29 and 30. That place about where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, that's from Mark 9, verses 43 to 48. That passage that we read, that this place of everlasting punishment, Matthew 25, 46, this place where in fact the devil and all those that follow him will be cast, Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. Question, does that sound as if it's merely figurative? Does it sound as if it's something to be taken as merely a descriptive hyperbole? Hell is a real place. And our Savior came because He knew the terribleness of it. And He knew the awfulness of it. And He knew how important it was for you and me to have a way to stay out of it. That's why He came. But think about heaven. It could also be said that He came so that we could be there. Heaven is this place where the throne of God exists. Psalm 11 verses 3 and 4. It's a place, in fact, as we read of in Revelation 21 where there's no need for the character of other than the light of God and His Son. There's no need for a sun or the moon. And isn't it true that in that place there's no crying, no pain, no death, no agony, no curse, no difficulty, no death? Revelation 21.4 Don't you want to be in a place where none of that's there? Quite often my family and I are reminded as we have dealings with the things in the world... And can't it often be such a discouraging, distracting place? People are motivated by hatred. They're motivated by envy and jealousy on many occasions. And they choose to do things that are hurtful and damaging and so disruptive. We want to go to a place where there is none of that. For there is nothing that defiles that will enter heaven. Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven. Jesus came that we can do that. 
He came that you and I might have right to the tree of life, Revelation twenty-two fourteen. That perhaps brings us to one last element, though, in the lesson today, and it should be a brief one. One other reason for which our Savior came that might be presented is this one. Jesus also on one occasion in Matthew 10, 34 said that He came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. When many first hear that, it seems so counter to what they expect. For Jesus is indeed one who brings peace, John 14, 27. And He is one through which the gospel is the gospel of peace, Romans 10, 15. But on that occasion He said, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. As we come near the close of this lesson this morning, I would ask that we give a passing thought to what He meant on that occasion. For the next verses, describe it. Jesus identified in the following way. He brought the message that demands the absolute highest of those that would be His servants. He said, He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And you could just hear so many in the world and their mouth falls open in virtual disbelief. He that loves father or mother, mother-in-law or father-in-law, he that loves the other characters or attributes of even family or this life more than me is not worthy of me. That's what the Savior meant when He said He comes to bring a sword. He brings the attribute that demands a decision. You and I know that swords tend to divide. Swords tend to distinguish. Swords tend to make one make the final dedicatory sacrifice. We each understand that if there was someone holding a sword to us and demanding something of us, we either do it or die. Jesus came to bring a sword, and this sword demands everything that there is of us. Will you and I buckle beneath the pressure of Satan and the world? and thus forego our association with the Master? Or will we give absolute allegiance to Him even if it distances friends, family, or otherwise? We must remain loyal to Him. He said, I came to bring a sword. Many in that first century era knew well what that sword in fact did, didn't it? Many of the apostles were put to death because they believed what Jesus said, and they preached it until the day of their death. Many others in that first century were in fact slaughtered and slain and killed because they were faithful to the Master. The Lord brought a sword all right. And today our commitment must be as certain and as steadfast. What about your commitment today? We're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. If we could be a part of your reception to the gospel call of invitation, it would be our privilege and it would in fact be our honor to assist you so that you could be a faithful member of His body. It might be that you have never rendered initial obedience to it. Jesus demands that you first hear what He has taught and what He has said. And you must believe it with all your heart. Romans 10 verses 13 and 14. As you do that, repent of the sins in your life. Let the godly sorrow of the thought of them in fact break your heart as you realize the sacrifice God made so that your sins might be forgiven. Upon repentance of them, confess His great name, the name of Christ as the Son of God, and be baptized simply and humbly. And in that act of baptism, your sins are washed away, whatever they may have been. If you have become a member of that body, 
tasted all the blessings that go with it, but you have fallen aside to unfaithfulness. Maybe you've forgotten why Christ came. Why not today rededicate your life to Him? If your sins have been of a public nature, we'd be happy to pray on your behalf to the Father for forgiveness. And as we do that, we are assured that as long as you confess and repent all of them, He'll forgive you. If today we could be of assistance to you in either of those ways, might we notice then in conclusion of this lesson, why did Christ come? He came to seek and to save the lost, to abolish death and bring immortality to light through the gospel. And He came also, as we've most recently seen, to bring a sword. And now it's time for you and me individually to decide. If you need to respond in a public way today, won't you let that be known and do so while together we stand and while we sing.